Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. You guys know about Friends? I know you both do. Megan, Emily. Like you know the how TV they title show? Every episode? Yeah, the TV yeah. show. The legendary sitcom, Friends. You know how they title every episode? How do they title every episode? The one where fill in the blank. The one where Joey this eats a This episode. Or, yeah. Yeah. The, the one where Monica gets her head stuck in a turkey. Right. Um, th- this is the episode that we should call the one where Petya kisses everybody. Yeah. <laughs> he does kiss a lot of people. There's lots of smooching going on in this particular episode. It reminds me of a funny, funny story with my grandmother, actually. Can I tell you really quick? At one point, my grandmother was watching a, a passionate Russian TV show, and she was telling me all about it, and she goes, Megan, <laughs> I hope <laughs> that you don't watch this show. And I said, Grandma, me... Why in the world not? You were just talking about how much you love it. And she goes, these Russian men are too emotional. (laughs) (laughs) I hope she's not listening because my impression of Grammy is totally overblown. She doesn't sound like that, but I see what she She, meant in this chapter. She kind of does actually sound like that. Megan. Megan. I hope you don't watch this show. You shouldn't watch this show. These are these men are too emotional. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know that we could even call this one a man. No, no. He's a boy. He's he's just little, which, again, confuses me, though, a little bit, because we've been in this war for how long? Does anybody know the number of years it's actually taken to, for us to get through this? Not in our lives, but in the lives of our characters. The, the first part of the book takes place in 1805, and it's now around 1812. Okay. So, so... What's really true is that Petya was a lot smaller when we met him. Yes, than he's I really the youngest understood. brother, the youngest Rostov brother. Okay, he was like so a little kid running like around with the now. puppy at the beginning of the story. Yeah, I mean, even Got Natasha it. was still playing with dolls, you know. So if he was like eight, he would still only be about fifteen now. Which, I think it yeah, even fits. says his age in this section. I think he's sixteen, or maybe maybe Dolokhov was just like using him as a placeholder and guessing his age. But well, this is, I, I felt a huge relief on reading these chapters. I don't know about the two of you that we were into character development and out of historical ruminations. So I want to ask you a question before we start the nitty gritty here. And that question is, does this passage on Petya and his beautiful, perfect, adorable little personality fill you up with fear and trembling for next week's episode? Or does it signify a return to the highest and best things that Tolstoy has to give us? I wonder if I read too far. Do we, hmm. <laughs> What chapter does today's section end with? Uh, ten. Chapter 10. Mm. Did you read through chapter 11 mm-hmm. or chapter 12? Mm. Ah, she did, did. She did. Then you're not allowed to answer this question. Emily? 
Well, I was going to ask you to clarify. Are you asking us to evaluate whether Tolstoy is portraying Petya as naive or as innocent in the best way? Like That's a good way to put the question. He's I done guess before. To make it the most specific, did you start to worry with a cold clutch at your heart halfway through this passage if he's about to kill a Rostov? <laughs> well, because <laughs> that's what I that's started an to worry. Unfair question, because I know what happens. <laughs> well, I've forgotten. So I thought, and I can answer this very carefully, given that I have read too far and I've shown my hand there. I thought that there's a, a heavy mixture of foreboding going on in these chapters, mostly because of the references to all of our young people who are now grown up with this kind of right. sad tone. Like he sounds like the best of Ilya Rostov at one point, that generous spirit of yeah. Ilya Rostov, but it's like completely untarnished. And we see what happened to Ilya Rostov. Our latest with him, he's an old man waiting to die, you know? And the same is right. true with like, I don't know, I'm going to I'm gonna draw it out, but there are allusions to each of our characters that we love in their most innocent state. And he's yeah. like all of them, and none of them are like that anymore. So in that way, it's... It's a sense of foreboding that he hasn't grown up yet, and they have. And so everyone does, and when will he? Well, let's jump into plot a little bit. Petya is out on assignment from his general, and it appears that he, well, to him, it appears that he has been kept out of the war. Everything he's encountered is very exciting to him, but he has a constant sense that he is not where heroic things are happening, and he is overjoyed at the possibility that perhaps he's now where where heroism could really take place. What Wasn't do you guys it? think about his attitude in this portion? Megan was saying that there's a lot of callbacks to previous sections. Wasn't it Andre who had basically that exact thought earlier in the novel that he, or was it Pierre? I don't remember. Someone Both. I think it's both. Well, there was a specific scene where whoever it was, I'm pretty sure it was Andre, was saying that they... They just were never where they thought would be the most action. Oh, it was Pierre, and he ended up being in the exact heart of the epicenter of the battle. Of the that battle, won the war. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's there are so many scenes where he acts like Pierre. There's even a scene where he's eating along with the soldiers and thinking the same kind of thoughts about what heroism is and how to be one of the men. And you know, he's got this idealism and he's feasting on it in a crowd of soldiers, just like that scene with Pierre on the on the hilltop. Feasting on idealism. That's cool. I like that. I, I like that way of putting it. It's painfully obvious that he's a little kid in a room full of men, but they don't seem to. They don't seem to be either annoyed by it, or even perceiving it necessarily. His, his presence appears to be a balm on the gathering. Did you guys think that too? Yeah, I even thought it went so far as they wanted him there. They looked for ways to make him comfortable, and they were all thinking of ways to protect him. The The general that he's come from, there's a reference to how he did in the last battle, which I can't pronounce. It's like Viasma or something, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But he was wild in that battle and um, didn't follow orders and went off shooting his gun into enemy lines, and his general was worried about him. And so sent him on this mission to get him out of trouble and to protect him basically and told him not to get involved in anything to stay alive. And we get a kind of a pattern. Well, 
kind of like a foil character for him in that little French boy who they captured. Yeah, the little drummer boy. Yeah, the little French drummer boy. And Petya is very concerned about him and he's watching his fellow soldiers take care of that French boy. And I saw them take care of Petya in the same way. He's, he is in the same category as the little drummer boy, whether he wants to be or not, in the minds of his fellow soldiers. I think that's true. And not just in the minds of his fellow soldiers. I just, I think in Tolstoy's mind too, because one of the thing that we know about the little French drummer boy is that he doesn't know anyone. He's a little slow and he's of no use to their mission. And I just think of that scene from last time where Petya is overhearing the officers in charge talk about the, <laughs> the operation for the next day. And basically they turn to him and say, Right? And he's like, right, yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, not understanding anything that happened. Yeah. Having no it's idea. It's really refreshing to read this kind of childlikeness here. And I, I say childlikeness instead of childishness because I'm not sure that he knows enough to realize that he is young. He has all sorts of, of flowery notions. I think he even betrays himself when he says, they think of me like this boy. I'll show them what kind of boy I am. Except for he still uses the word boy yeah. in in describing that. I mean, he's doing so ironically or sarcastically, but he could have said, they think I'm a boy. I'll show them I'm a man. But it just, it, it comes out of him. I'll show them what kind of boy I am. Yeah. Well, that's on the topic of things coming out of him. I, one of the things I noticed is that he is, his instinct is to be generous. Where do you suppose he got that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's Ilya Rostov all the way. There's his dad, right? I bet we could find a little piece of every Rostov in Petya well, in the section. I think so. And I actually went through and did it, which is really fun. Take it um, away, And Megan. I could lead you to each one of them. But the Ilya Rostov one is deep. It's not just this overwhelming desire to give away all that you have, this beautiful generosity that ties communities together. But it's also being no good with money. I mean, all this boy does is spend whatever money he has to get excessive amounts of stuff. I mean, he's carrying around like five pounds of raisins. Right. What? <laughs> five pounds of raisins. And he's just handing them out to everyone. He's got a hundred flints. Don't you just need one of those? Like, I don't know. And he's just handing them out to people. But it's kind of in the same way that we appreciated Ilya Rostov's party at the very beginning of War and Peace, thousands of pages ago, the way that he never knew a stranger and everyone was welcome at his table and he would give them everything he had. It's, it's what makes community. And it also is innocent and childlike and needs protecting because that person's going to get taken advantage of, you know? <laughs> exactly. Which makes... And I see the same spirit being called out of the soldiers around him. They're, they appreciate him and they kind of circle around him, you know? Yeah, I think it's what makes Denisov such a compelling character that when Petya asks him about the drummer boy after much consternation, afraid that the question itself will bring shame to him, that mm -hmm. Denisov doesn't even think about it. And he says, yes, of course, bring him in. I don't, I, I don't even know if that's Petya calling that out of them or if we're, it's an affirmation of Petya's instincts. He's afraid that his instincts are childish. Yeah. But Denisov's reaction shows us that actually they're manly and it's Petya's fear that's childish. Yeah, I agree with that, actually. I think Petya's version of what honor and heroism looks like is is skewed because he's too young to understand the issue. But he is honorable and he is heroic. And it's not the actions on the battlefield that he may or may not take that 
is going to make him that way. It's his desire to give and to love and to affirm and to to be connected to the people around him that makes him that way. I think we get an, an affirmation of that in the on the first page of the next chapter when we get we Tolstoy contrasts Dolokhov and Denisov's appearances. <laughs> and one of them is dressed like a soldier and one of them is dressed like your average Russian dude. And the average Russian dude is the one whose heart is full of generosity and who wants to take care of the little drummer boy and who is sort of notorious for forgetting to do anything about his prisoners other than take some receipts. I didn't read about this, but we should. We should look it up. But it, it appears from just this chapter that to that you, you take your prisoners and then you send them, maybe with a light guard or something, but you send them to where they're supposed to go. It, it, with a piece of paper like you take receipts now i've captured you now so off you go to where you're supposed to be <laughs> that's not gonna work and that but that's the way that denisov does it and it's it's got some of the milk of human kindness in it dolikov on the other hand whacks them all right because he's he's a soldier and he's a warrior and he's cold Maybe I was confused by the sink. It helps that you're describing it that way. I thought that um, this is the way that it's done in the Russian army. Denisov is following orders, and he wants the inevitable, which is those those prisoners' starvation and death, to happen out outside of his view. He can't help them. He would if he could, but he can't. And so he would rather that happen on the road to somewhere else, not in his under his jurisdiction. And his conversation with Dolokhov is Dolokhov basically calling him a hypocrite. These men are going to die anyway. Why don't you just take responsibility and basically, you know what's happening. Why avoid acknowledging it? Maybe, but there's also a sense of, there's a sense that Dolokhov enjoys inflicting that cruelty, yeah. right? That fits. I hadn't thought of it, but it totally fits what we know of Dolokhov. Yeah, he's a little vindictive. He his character is so interesting. He has gone through several iterations. We're even told in this section. He, right, we first met him when he was a common rough soldier and he was making moves on Helene and got into that fight with Pierre. And then he, like, has a spiritual experience and starts dressing like a Persian. It's true. And now he's backed, but he's now he's put on a new costume, which is the refined officer gentleman. I just, where, what does that tell us about his character? What kind of journey has he been on? I don't know, but I think it's telling that Petya, who's, who, and this happens every time there's a Rostov on the scene. Um, actually, that's not true. It happens when either Petya or Natasha is on the scene. They become the moral and spiritual standard by which we evaluate all the characters around them, right? And in this scene, or in this section for today, Petya is uneasy, I think just twice. Maybe there's one more that I'm forgetting. The first time he's uneasy is when Tikhon, our, our heroic um, spy catcher from the last episode, is, is back from his mission, and they're all giving him heck for not bringing them a, a prisoner. And the reason that he doesn't have a prisoner is because he captured one, learned whatever he could from him, but the guy only spoke sign language, and he was pretty sure that um, Denisov didn't, and so he killed him. And it's very glib, and it's very upbeat, and everyone's so happy, and they're all swept up in the in the warrior spirit. And yet, Petya looks around and goes, hang on a second, this dude killed a guy. And then there's this little unease in his spirit. That unease comes back when Dolokhov and Denisov are talking about the prisoners and what to do with them. There's a there's a little bit of reality 
and I think probably from Dolokhov, a little bit of cold-heartedness and or callousness, maybe is a better way to put it, that sets Petya on edge. And I submit that it's supposed to set us on edge as well. What do you guys think? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's so juxtaposed with the scene where Petya is allowed to go and get the little French drummer boy, and he stands in the doorway with him, feeling so deeply and so compassionately for him that he's just like Natasha in that scene. And he even reaches out and holds his hand and says, come in, come in. And is so tender. Everything about Dolokhov's treatment of humanity is the opposite of that. And it's so foreign to a Rostov to watch Dolokhov move that, of course, of course he's uncomfortable. I think it's interesting, though, where that goes, because he goes on a little mission, just him and Dolokhov were forced right. to compare their two worldviews as we watch them interact in a French camp. And Petya's takeaway at the end of watching Dolokhov be a, you know, a spy in a French camp is remarkable. Didn't you guys think so? How Natasha-esque it is. Yes. He says at the end of that passage, and we could talk about why, but he says, you're such a hero. He seizes him by the sleeve and says, you're such a hero. Ah, uh, how good. Sounds just like Natasha, just yes. pronouncing a judgment, right? How good. How excellent. How I love you. Which is, you know, a wildly Natasha thing to say. And Dolokhov says, all right, all right. But Petya would not let go of him. And in the darkness, Dolokhov made out that Petya was leaning towards him. He wanted <laughs> to kiss. <laughs> Dolokhov kissed him, <laughs> laughed, and turning his horse, disappeared into the darkness. And I just thought this was so profound uh. because he's like the devil. Dolokhov is like a heartless, cold devil. And here's Petya, who's the embodiment of everything loving that we know in the story. Right. And he won't let him go. And he pronounces a value judgment. You are good and you're a hero. Let me kiss you. And Dolokhov lets him. I thought that was so interesting. What did you guys take away from that? It's not the first time someone has pronounced that judgment over Dolokhov. Pierre did as well when Dolokhov basically repented to him. Yeah. Um, uh, Pierre em embraces him. Yeah. And says, my, my friend, my good friend. I don't know. I think there's a battle for Dolokhov's soul going on. But I, I thought the same thing that, that Megan just said. I loved the, the portion with Dolokhov as a spy. First of all, awesome plot intrigue. I mean, that was totally. sweet. Come on, Tolstoy. That's awesome. Th that's more or less the best scene of an action movie. Oh, yeah. It totally played like a movie. Yeah, he just rolled in there and did whatever he wanted. And they, they were too chicken to call him out. I mean, that's very cool. But then, yeah, very you're right. Cool. The affirmation of his character that we get from little Petya is wonderful. I think it's to go back for a second. It's interesting that it's one of the things that makes Petya uncomfortable is actually Tikhon, who has been a Petya-esque figure in the past. And Yeah, what separates the two of them? Because well, you're right. It's there's there is a little bit of playful boyishness about Tikhon. He's a soldier. Tikhon is a soldier, and there's a necessity to war. And he's comfortable in that. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we like these characters. They're comfortable with their circumstances. And one of his circumstances is that he is a good soldier. And I think that's true of Dolokhov as well. And, and that's a good thing, but Petya maybe as a child has access to the deeper truth, which is, well, Tolstoy's discomfort with war in general, I think, I think. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, it, also, it seems like Tikhon and Dolokhov as well hate the French for being French. 
rather than just treating war like a necessity. What do you guys think about that? Well, I definitely think one of the, there are two contrasts that I see between these men and Petya, whether it be Tikhon or Dolokhov or anyone, really. There's a stark contrast between all the soldiers and Petya, and I think there are two reasons, and one of them is that Petya hasn't killed yet. Mm. Right. All the descriptions that we get of his experience with the war, even though he's been promoted a time or two, and here he is being a soldier on his own, he hasn't actually killed anyone. He's just fired off some shots, right. yeah. Tolstoy says, vaguely. He's just sort of shot off into the air and ridden around on his horse. He hasn't taken anyone's life. And that, as we have seen time and again in this novel, changes you and hardens you. And it must. He's not hardened in that way yet. And in the scene where he's eating with the soldiers, like again, that that Pierre scene on the mountaintop with a bunch of soldiers, it's described like this. He's sitting with the officers at the table and tearing at a greasy hunk of fragrant mutton with his hands, which dripped with fat. Petya was in a rapturous, childlike state of tender love for all people and consequently of certainty that other people had the same love for him. Right. And that might be what you were saying, Ian, that these men, for whatever reason, have hardened themselves against a love for all men. It's not all men that they love. It's only their men. Mm -hmm. And Petya, as a child, hasn't hasn't, uh, constricted the boundaries of his love for everyone. Yeah. But it's not a real world that he's living in, is it? Um. The, the best part of our section for today, I think, is the description of his dream. Um, starts with the most adorable moment when he goes and finds a random soldier and asks him if he will sharpen. He, well, first of all, he offers him one of his 100 flints. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he asks, as though the soldier doesn't have, it, have some himself. And then he asks him if he will sharpen his saber. And he, he's too afraid to lie to him. He's honest and says... He was going to say it's been blunted, you know, by long use and all the battles I've been through. But no, instead, what he says is it's never been sharpened. Do you think you could do that for me? And while the sharpening is happening, he has this this vision and it's so bittersweet. Um, and I want to hear what you guys think about it. But from from my end, uh, it seems like Tolstoy is saying what a beautiful world it would be if all the things that Petya thinks about humanity and brotherhood and togetherness were actually true. Hmm. Emily? I actually, I, I don't know. I think there, it's a really rich scene. It reminds me of the scene his brother had earlier in the novel with the, the mummers and the world, the way the, way the world is um, kind of transformed through mm-hmm. the imagination but when in the description part of it is uh he, he's imagining the darkness is a cave and he's turning it kind of into a magical kingdom but he says maybe it is simply the cossack likakiv sitting under the wagon but it very well may be that he is the kindest bravest most wonderful most excellent man in the world whom nobody knows and mm-hmm. it reminded me of the weight of glory Oh, when yeah. Lewis says that you will never meet an ordinary person, and if you could see someone as they truly are, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. Mm. And it seems to me that Petya has access to that world, and I don't. I didn't necessarily. I'm tempted to take this as the real world. You say Petya doesn't live in the real world. I wonder if Tolstoy would say we don't live in the real world. This war isn't the real world this imaginary kingdom that Petya sees is closer to the real world. Well, I 
think that's beautiful. And I think there that might be borne out by the novel as well, because the scene directly after what you just read, Emily, is Petya looking up at the sky. And it reminded me so much of the scene with Pierre having basically professed his love for Natasha, knowing that that can never be requited, going out and seeing the comet, seeing this comet coming and touching down into his real experience. And Petya's moment sounds like this. Whatever Petya may have seen now, nothing would have astonished him. He was in a magic kingdom in which everything was possible. He looked at the sky. The sky was as magical as the earth. The sky was clearing and clouds raced over the treetops as if uncovering the stars. Sometimes it seemed that the clouds dispersed and a black clear sky appeared. Sometimes it seemed that these black patches were clouds. Sometimes it seemed that the sky rose high, high above his head. Sometimes the sky came right down so that he could touch it with his hand. I love that. I didn't make that connection, but I love that. You know, Petya is actually named after Pierre on purpose. Mm. Mm. That's beautiful. I didn't know that. This whole, I think this is my favorite chunk of writing in the whole novel so far. I absolutely love it. It was so evocative and so beautiful. And I really hope that your interpretation is right, Emily. Well, I think that it, I mean, as I'm thinking about it, it must be. Because what we decided about that comet scene is that it's the most hopeful thing Tolstoy can say. Amid all of his philosophies, he says there are moments where this supernatural agent, this divinity, comes down and breaks into the lives of human beings. And he's love. And he has said that to us, and the comet scene meant it. And so here, this magical unreality with the sky coming down and touching him is like another iteration that that's reality, and it's an overflow of love. Petya's whole character is an overflow of love. Mm. Maybe what he sees is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I don't know. Again, to struggle with the Rostov family, it's so easy to say that their flaw is profligacy and foolishness foolishness (laughs) but i wonder if instead it's a repetition of the family sin which is a desire to make a name for oneself in this artificial world we've created both nikolai and petya have this desire to make a hero for themselves to not be shamed yeah he this scene with the sky and you know the beautiful scene we just discussed gives way really quickly to a beautiful description of the, I think I understood this right, of soldiers playing music in the night. Mm. But Petya hears all of them and he thinks that he's imagining all of the music or either that or he's asleep. I couldn't quite figure this out. He's, but he's hearing it and he's orchestrating it. In his own mind, he's creating this music. It's his and it does whatever he says. What's going on here? It's his imagination. It's an extent, a direct extension of the magical world that he's seeing as he falls asleep. It's coming from the rhythmic sound of the sword being sharpened, the saber being sharpened, oh. which I think is in and of itself a beautiful image. And it's and it's a I mean it's a cool contrast between the, this implement of war and when the when this when the uh, Cossack is he a Cossack or a Hussar? I don't know. Cossack. When the Cossack finishes sharpening it, he basically says, hey, this will cut a Frenchman in half, dude. There you go. It's all set, right? It's dark. It's, it's a little on the dark side. Your, your weapon of mass destruction has been prepared for you, my lord. But as it's being sharpened, it is the occasion of rhythm and beauty, and it sparks in his mind this beautiful chorus that he conducts. I was struck by the fact that 
and especially if this is true that he's coming up with it on his own his mind is making the melody it says the melody grew passing from one instrument to another what is known as a fugue 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 <laughs> a fugue and what is known as a fugue was going on though Petya had not the slightest idea of what a fugue was so he ha- he is able to construct this melody that exists in reality, mm-hmm. even though he can't name it. Yep. And I think that that is, again, what Tolstoy is after, right? That you can participate in the harmony of life and you don't have to name it. That doesn't make yeah. it any less real. Yeah. And the other thing about, and, and um, oh man, I hope I can say this correctly, but the other thing I was thinking as I read this is that he's tapped into the fact that our imaginations um, improve everything. They, they reach for the ideal in everything. And so when we imagine horns and violins, they're better than real horns and violins because part of the act of human making is trying to pin down something that is eternal. And we're finite. We can't quite do it. We can imagine it, though, because there's something of the infinite in us, in each of us. And so the the process of creating art is trying to make that perfect sound of a trumpet in your mind actualized, make that perfect melody that you can imagine, unless you think about it a little bit too hard, come down and, and write itself on the page so that you can hear it in reality. And that's maybe that's the burden of, of mortality and finitude, is that we can imagine more than we can actually make be. I wish I had found another way to end that thought. Oh, I think it's beautiful. Then the words make be. That was <laughs> That fine. was beautiful. Yeah, I thought that was lovely. I, I'm stuck on the way that he ends that scene. Not the way you ended that scene. <laughs> the way that he ends that scene. Because he says, oh, how lovely that is, the sound that he's hearing in his mind. As much as I like and however I like, Petya said to himself. <laughs> and he attempted to conduct the chorus. That stuck... I don't know why it's it's stuck, but I can't quite get past it because on the one hand, I can see what you're saying, that it's his imagination uh, allows him to do the impossible, to hear everything that can be heard because he's not actually writing it down. He's not really bringing it down into reality. It's all still in the realm of imagination. But he's so very much the agent uh, in this scene, and that seems to be an illusion to me, mm-hmm. maybe the biggest illusion of all, that he is the master of whatever is going on here. Right. And he's so sure that he doesn't even question. I am totally as much as I like and whatever I like, you know? It seems to be that the essence of childhood and the thing that makes me the most afraid for him. Yeah, it, yeah. that's maybe this the grasping, the... trying to grasp the thing that's ungraspable. Yeah, this yeah. is where I was getting the foreboding and the worry that we're about to see a Rostov bite the dust for the first time. I'm pretty sure in the the Mummer chapter was paired with a chapter with Natasha, right? Where she imagined... Oh, yeah. Where she dances? Yeah, yeah. Again, creating some kind of art. And there was also something foreboding in that. I think I'm thinking of the scene where Natasha tries to take control of the household and imagines herself better than the servants and it starts mistreating everyone. Um, it's that it's the grasping of of something that you should just let be. Hmm. That that it's not the the being the thing itself is a good thing, 
but it's not yours to manipulate. I find myself wishing that we'd read the next chapter because, well, now I want to know. Well, you two, any, any, uh, any other thoughts about this passage before we wrap it up? I don't think so. We gotta, we gotta read on to know what happens. We kind of, it does feel like we're stopping in the end of a thought, you know, but we have to. Yeah. There's nothing to be done about it. Well, thank you both for your thoughts as usual. And thank you listeners for joining us as we chew our way through war and peace. Uh, We will take up the next five chapters next time. In the meantime, please join our discussion page on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you and hear uh, your ruminations on this great story. Until we meet again, my friends, bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.